You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode number 125 of the Business for Good podcast. This is a really good episode, but before we get to it, I just want to make a brief comment about the news because I just want to be honest, there's a lot of bad news in the world right now. War rages in the Middle East after the largest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. Russia's war on Ukraine continues with little end in sight. Pakistan has rounded up and deported a quarter million people it doesn't want, many of whom have never lived anywhere else. And that's not to mention the alarm sirens from an overheating planet that we continually see each and every week. To be blunt, watching the news can be pretty grim. But that is a primary reason that I host this show. Yes, there's an enormous amount of suffering in the world, but the point of this show is to offer some hopeful inspiration. It's to give those in our listening community a respite from the bad news and instead offer some good news about people who don't let the problems of the world paralyze them into inaction. Instead, the guests on this show are taking concrete action to create positive solutions to pressing problems. Doing the Business for Good podcast in the last 125 episodes gives me hope, and I know it does for many listeners who tell me the same. So I hope that you find inspiration in this podcast, not just this episode, but in the podcast in general. It's designed to be a light in the darkness, to showcase those who refuse to throw their hands up in the air and give up, and instead choose to be what my friend Zoe Weil calls a solutionary, someone devoting their life not to cursing the darkness, but rather to finding solutions to bring more light. And that is exactly what this episode's guest is doing, in this case, actually, quite literally. That's because every single time that you take a step, you are creating energy. Sadly, that energy isn't captured and used to power your daily life, but what if it could be captured and turned into fossil fuel-free sources of light? Exactly right. That's what PaveGen is doing. What started as a guy tinkering in his room to make tiles that generate electricity when depressed is now a multi-million dollar startup with flooring installations in more than 30 countries. As you'll hear in this interview with PaveGen CEO Lawrence Campbell-Cook, After much trial and error, he invented a tile, which he clandestinely installed in downtown London in the middle of the night to see what would happen. The video he posted online went viral. And the next thing he knew, because people saw this video of people stepping on a tile and it producing light, he knew that he had to make this work. And when he woke up the next morning after posting his viral video, he had a half million dollar purchase order request from a major shopping mall already. That sent Lawrence off to the races, sometimes quite literally with installations for runners. Obviously, they take a lot of steps. And now he's overseeing a team of 40 employees seeking to mass produce energy creating tiles for sidewalks, roads, dance floors, football fields, and more all around the world. And unlike some types of clean energy, this technology doesn't depend on the sun shining or the wind blowing, but rather just people or vehicles passing over the tiles. PaveGen's now launched a crowdfunding campaign to fuel its future growth and it works to create its vision for a more sustainable energy future literally one step at a time. If you're interested in participating in their Kickstarter, the link is in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. So even if the news of the day saddens you, don't let it paralyze you. Take inspiration from the good work of so many who are using their lives to be true solutionaries. I now bring you one of those solutionaries, Lawrence Kemble-Cook.
Lawrence, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Great. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. All right. So I had to look up how to pronounce piezoelectric energy, but I also had to look up what it is. So first, for those people who have never heard piezoelectric energy, what is it? And am I pronouncing it correctly? Or is there a a difference between UK and American pronunciations? Really good question. We call it piezoelectric. Wow. Um, okay. I think in America, it, you're probably right on that. It's, it's kind of an yeah. academic word, so it's used in different ways. Um, this is like aluminum and aluminium. So I, yeah, I, I think in America it's piezoelectric, but okay, we're going to include a link to it. But just so people know, this is P-I-E-Z-O, electric energy. So what is piezo or piezoelectric energy, Lawrence? So piezoelectric energy is when you um, depress a crystal and the crystal produces power. So if you imagine an electric cigarette lighter or your cooker at home, when you push the button to ignite the gas, it makes a little clicking sound, click, click, click. And that is a piezoelectric crystal deflecting, producing power. However, I must say, paved gen technology doesn't use piezoelectric. We use it. I've built many piezoelectric floors before, and people have tried it. And we actually use an electromechanical system that is around a thousand times more powerful than piezoelectric. And I, I've got many stories to tell about the differences between piezoelectric and electromechanical power. It's up to you if you want. <laughs> well, what's ele- so? I mean, to me, it sounded kind of like electromechanical, right? Like the, I, to a layperson like myself, who is not an engineer or doesn't really know much about electricity in general, actually, like it sounds to me like you're applying a mechanical force and you're creating energy, which sounds like electromechanical. You know, so tell me, like, what is it? What is? How is what you're doing different? Why is it a thousand times more powerful? Yeah, so piezoelectric works when you, you depress this crystal and you get really high voltage, but it's for a millisecond. So we're talking one thousandth of a of a second if you're lucky, like a like a burst, like a quick burst of power. Now, if you try and store that energy and try to do something mean, meaningful with it, think of it just like filling up a bathtub. If I fill up a bathtub with a rush of water that lasts one millisecond imagine how long it would take to fill up a bath now my normal bath takes let's say eight minutes to fill you're going to need like millions of me clicking my fingers of uh, power to fill it and so i've built these products with peers electricity and i've realized that it just doesn't work besides trying to send the energy as like you can use the energy for something like uh, a sensor and what I realized is you need to, if you're going to fill up the bathtub, you need to have energy that lasts longer than one thousandth of a, of a second. So what we did is we found a solution that would provide energy for uh, four to five seconds of a footstep. And how that works is it's an electromechanical flywheel. So when you stand on the product, the downward force is converted into a rotational force. Now, we do that through this flywheel technology. It's an incredibly efficient like machine. And one step will spin the flywheel for five seconds. And hopefully the next person will step on it after four seconds. And you can continuously rotate this flywheel embedded in the floor. And the flywheel has magnets and copper. And as the magnets pass the copper, it generates power. So a common way of generating energy. But I basically realized that this is so much more powerful than piezoelectric. 
I blew up every piezoelectric circuit I had because they weren't designed to take so much energy. You know, I get four joules of power, which equates to four watt seconds of power. And if you're talking in layman's terms, it's four watts of energy, which can charge a phone, something piezoelectricity will, will never do. So it's a very different technology base. All right. That's very helpful. So I'm glad that you have corrected me on that because it's very, very useful to comprehend that. So you're using electromechanical flywheels, and this is something where you've had literally hundreds of iterations to try to get to your current prototypes. And so, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show, they're interested in innovation and invention. And obviously, we know like very rarely are things that are successful, successful overnight, but you spent years trying to invent something. Tell me that story. Like what happened back in 2009 when you were thinking, were you thinking, I'm going to start a company? Do you just want to you know, create an invention that you might license to somebody else? Like what were you thinking back 14 years ago when you were thinking about trying to harness the power of footsteps to create energy? Yeah, I, th- I think when I first started, I was uh, a designer. I was in school. I was you know, chucked out of school, didn't get on it in academic so- scenarios. But I did love design, and I chose to study industrial design and technology at Loughborough University, which is the UK's version of MIT. I go there, and I, I get more into sustainable design because I realize designers have so much power. The, the The decision a designer makes has so much impact on the world we live in today, to the carbon footprint of an iPhone through to the latest Tesla design. There's a huge impact. So. When I was at Loughborough University, I got the chance to do an internship at at E.ON. Now, E.ON is one of the largest utility companies in Europe. And they said to me, Lawrence, we like your work. Would you like to come and work for us and design us a new range of street lighting to be used in our cities? I was like, great, my first ever job. I'm 21. Let's go do this. So I spent a year engineering, designing, refining solar-powered streetlights with integrated wind turbines. Now, the problem is it failed. It didn't work. In Solar works great in cities, only on rooftops. If you have lots of shade, you don't have really, really great solar. And similarly with, with wind, wind works fantastically well in, in the sea. In Britain, we have lots of ocean around us or, or up in the mountains or on fields. So wind doesn't work at sea. So I basically failed. Eon fired me. I went back to uni depressed and sat in my bedroom. I was crying. My parents cried. We all cried a bit because it was a a sad moment to be fired from your first ever job. And I just kept thinking about this problem of energy, specifically in cities. And I kept thinking, like, what other power sources are there? So my first idea was, hey, people have lots of energy in cities, especially young people. I grew up in a place called Brixton in South London, which is commonly known for having young people with lots of energy. And I thought, look, can we harness the energy of them kicking a streetlight? Let's allow young people to kick it and generate energy from them playing on it. Then I thought, hold on, it's probably not a very good idea to let kids do ninja flying kicks in front of like buses and cars on streets. So I thought, okay, let's think about it. What about instead of kicking the bus stop or the streetlight or whatever it was that needed power, why don't they just walk on it? Why don't we let Young people, old people, babies, everyone walk on a floor that can be connected to anything you want. And so I had this kind of eureka moment. And look, people have tried this idea before. This is not like the first time anyone's ever tried to harness the idea of a footstep. But I just went and started building prototype after prototype after prototype. And 
the one that kind of worked and gave me this like moment of this is possible. None of them were piezoelectric. Piezoelectric is like a dead technology when it comes to doing meaningful things. And I, I've seen every week someone sends me a design for a piezoelectric floor, and they're amazing, but they're then they're really not going to do anything useful, I believe. And so I built this kind of flywheel technology, and. I came out and one step on this prototype and it was made out of wood. It was creaking. It was held together by duct tape. It wasn't great. But one step, power to light, this little light, LED for 20 seconds. And I looked and I was like, wow. And the academic staff at the uni were like, Lawrence, this is fake. There's no way you've made this work. Like this light is on for a long time. And if you jump up and down on it, the light was down for like a minute. It was, it was incredible. And uh, I realized that, like, there was something there. So I, I kind of left uni, got some interest with my idea, and I started this long journey of, look, I didn't go on an MBA. I didn't, I didn't go to, like, the best business school in the world. I literally made every mistake possible. And I knew as a designer I had to validate the idea. So I went around London laying green floors on uh, Oxford Street because I wanted to know. I had this green rubber floor that was about an inch thick. If I just lay it on a floor... Do people want to walk on it? Yes or no? And I laid it down. Admittedly, I did trip a few people up, but I wasn't even a company, so no one could sue me. But I laid it down, and basically people started like going, oh, my God, it's a green floor. I want to walk on this. People were jumping on it, even though it didn't do anything. So I knew that people liked walking on it. Then I took it to some schools because that was the only place where I wouldn't get sued for testing a technology with no insurance, no compliance, no building standards, nothing. And students just, they loved it. Like students went crazy on it. The teachers were like, run, don't walk down this corridor because the faster you run, the more energy we produce. So I'm like three or four years in, I've been living off winning design awards. I had like some schools interested. It was me in my bedroom, like just kind of everyone else had a job who I graduated with. And it was literally me four years in, still a bit of a hobo in my apartment in London. And I'd slowly been refining the product. Like every time I won some prize money, I would then go and like get a new metal drive shaft for my product or whatever I could afford at the time. And after four years, I was like, look, I've got to give up. I need to get a job. Like, come on, what I'm or this has got to be successful. And I'd had loads of interest, but no, no serious interest in like giving me a million pounds to to you know buy lots of products because the product didn't exist. And also no one would invest because I had no revenue. So after four years, I was like, okay, I know. I'm gonna install my prototype in central London illegally and i'm going to prove everyone this this works so i broke into a place called london south bank it's very near big ben it's near the river thames right in the center of town and i dug a hole with my friend at two in the morning we got pickaxes out we submerged our tile and the tile was about three or four inches thick we submerged it in the in the paving slabs the sidewalk we were mixing concrete at four in the morning, looking around, making sure there's no security. We troweled in the concrete to fix it, and we ran cables uh, into lights. So when you walked on the floor, hundreds of these little lights would come on, and the whole area would light up. And it, it was amazing. And rather wearily eyed at 6 a.m., we creeped away with a couple of photographs. And on my website, I posted, the future of energy is here. Rather bold in a photo. And I woke up a couple of hours later, and Westfield Shopping Mall was on the line, you know, the equivalent of like a Nordstrom in the US. And they were like, Lawrence, did you do an installation last night? And I said, well, well yes, I did. They said, did it work? And I said, well, yeah, it did actually. And they said, we'd like to buy one. I'm like, oh my God, you want to buy one? 
okay and they're like how much and i'm like i, I looked to my friend who was like helping me i was like how much is it uh, i just guessed i was like half a million dollars and they paid me half a million dollars the next day so oh, wow. the idea the, the idea went from weird guy in his in his bedroom four years playing with bits of technology to like i suddenly started to like get a small design office we started to really focus on the electric electrical aspects of like storage and how to store that energy in an efficient way and it was so hard to do because you're you're generating energy as ac uh, alternating current you've got to convert it to dc without losing half the power which is a really big challenge so nothing worked off the shelf and we had to start working hard on that and then I. So, well, let me ask you. So, is the prototype that you made and that you installed in London what you sold to Westfield, or did you have to invent something else first? Oh, I had to invent something else. Yeah, I'm laughing okay. because look, this was an extremely basic product, and when you work with a company like Westfield, they have very very stringent building codes you've got to be compliant with the american disabilities act 2012 there's so much compliance that goes into it we have to have minimum of 10 million dollars liability insurance to install there so the company was like a baby like a one-year-old and we had to become a teenager very quickly to deliver to westfield so there was a huge change and so around that time i got the chance to go to favela in brazil and uh, I got a I, I won Entrepreneur of the Year with Shell, and they funded me to go and dig up a favela soccer pitch and replace this soccer pitch with my kinetic energy tiles. And the idea is is that your step would store the energy in a battery and then use be used to power the floodlights. And I don't know if any of your listeners have spent much time in Brazil, but these favelas are an amazing community of really rich culture, amazing people. But it's obviously, it's, it's really it's really tough. Like economically, it's an incredibly tough environment. But it was like the warmest, most beautiful environment I've ever spent time in. And we put this floor in, the community started to understand what was going on, really get behind us. And so I would be there with Shell with all their security and they'd all go and I'd just stay and spend time with the children, the adults, because they just really saw the power of how a sustainable technology can inspire them to look differently at engineering and science. And then lo and behold, we launch it a month later and I'm sitting next door to none other than Pele, the most famous footballer in the world, who's launching it with me. So we're doing this press conference. It's me and Pele. I'm like, I'm just a guy who's been digging out floors around the world. I've suddenly got Pele there. Pele starts crying halfway through it because he realizes the importance of energy in a favela community. And then it's like our journey really started. You know, we we started to we worked across Africa, taking it to other communities there, and started to really work on the engineering behind the product. And you know, it's a really difficult product to build because ultimately it's one of the harshest environments known to man you've got the rain you've got incredible point loading forces you've got differential expansion rates between different materials getting hot and cold at different times you've got like probably a a soccer team or american football team jumping up and down on it you've got to be able to deal with not only the force of the american uh football team jumping on it but the huge amount of energy they could possibly produce one moment in a course of 10 years and you've got to make sure it won't catch fire so you have to build like over-engineered heat sinks so it was it was a wild challenge and i think we've kind of been on this journey now and we probably got properly like commercial about five years ago and we've been scaling up the business in around 37 different countries now from you know working with the federal u.s government to yosemite national park visitor centers to a whole array of really interesting locations for our, our product 
That's really uh, incredible, Lauren. So let me ask you, how many years and how much money did it take before you started really commercializing this? So you talked about how you tried a lot of different prototypes and how you had to really work out things that, for example, let's say aren't going to catch fire, which would be a pretty good thing to avoid. But also you're winning awards. So you're getting some grant money. You get some deal from Westfield. Like how much money and how many years did it take before you actually could start a commercial business here? Yeah, great question. So like the last five years has been good. So like 2017, 2018, we started really kind of having a real product that was stable that could work in these environments. Before then, it was around like testing technology. I think a few elements here are one, like I did my R&D in real time. You know, I put it in the ground, I tested it, it broke, I learned and I iterated. I didn't just sit in a lab for years on end. We were literally out there I say, look, in England, we were pounding pavements, but I was going to dance festivals, putting in the floor. I was going to running tracks. I was going to uh, the busiest shopping malls in the world. I was finding like wherever I could find a new test for it, I'd go and learn. I have a whole list of things that went wrong. Like you have no idea how much went wrong. A lot of it was out of our control, but you have to put it in the ground to know um, if it's going to work or not. So I raised my first round of funding was about 50K dollars. That was like friends and family investment. Then we went and did a small uh, business angel round of 350K. And since then, we've gone on to raise in another 10 million on, on top of that from like, the institutional investors, you know, VCs and like family offices have invested in us since that journey. So I've done a transition from like a, a wacky inventor and I am in my heart, like I am a wacky inventor, but to, to more of a, like a corporate CEO who's looking at like long-term growth and mm-hmm. a trade sale, you know, an exit one day for this kind of this technology. So really about eight years then, right? So if 2017 is when you got commercialized, you started this thing in 2009. So it's really like eight years essentially of tinkering and of spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to try to create something that could become a viable business. You said that you're in over 30 different countries today. You know, you've had billions of footsteps on these products. So what is the headcount right now that you guys have? And what is the, the what is the revenue that you're able to bring in now? Yeah, so the the team in London, we have a headquarters in London and a tech facility in Cambridge, which we call Silicon Fen, our uh, mini Silicon Valley, where we do a lot of our deep tech. So yeah, team of 40. And we've we've delivered last year, we grew revenue 100%. So we delivered around $3 million. And we've got really big plans for the next 24 months, we scale up. I think like one of the important things here is like, you see all these stories of like super fast growth companies and you know they take venture capital money and they go fast quick as they can like we had offers for like vc money and the way i looked at it is like i don't necessarily want to give away a huge amount of my business and also a huge amount of control because i knew that this technology like we are on a crusade this is a whole new product category we're not just selling another me too product and i knew that if you try and force this to sell uh, like like many vcs would I just felt like it would be sold early and it wouldn't allow us to achieve our goals. And our goals are we we want to empower communities all around the world from every city, every town, every village. But every community should have the chance to access our technology and access to energy is so important for everyone, but mainly people in these developing worlds. And we take it for granted a bit in, in the lives we live today when we can charge our phone and we can walk around at nighttime in the cities and, and have light there. So I think we've got this big, big mission and 
And we've just done a, a, a kind of our, our final uh, fundraise now um, that's live in the UK, like a crowdfund to allow people to own part of the business. So it's a really interesting time as we, we scale up and, and look towards the future. Nice, nice. Well, that's great. So I do want to go back just to the technology a little bit here, because and you talked about how well, you know, you have to have the sun shining for solar panels to work, you have to have wind blowing in order to make wind work. But in your case, you just need people to walk around, right? Or people to run around or people to dance around. And it doesn't really matter what the sun or wind is doing at that time. However, you know, solar panels and wind turbines are hooked up to the grid, right? Like I have solar panels on my roof. They, if I, you know, that energy goes into the grid and so people can utilize it. This though is off grid, right? Like you're not actually putting this into the energy system. So it can only be used either instantly or locally. Uh, or, or like, tell me, how does it work? Like, are you able to store it? I know there is, you can have a battery associated with this, but what is the actual practical application here? So that people create this electromechanical energy when they step and then where does the energy go yeah so when people walk on on pave gen that energy can be used instantly so it can light a light you know it can charge your phone or we can store the energy in batteries so it's really important so if you look at say one of our, our largest installations it's two point circle very near the white house in washington and the energy of 10,000 people a day is is used. We store the energy in batteries. And then at nighttime, it powers all the lights in this little pocket park area. And they, they're powered for around seven hours. Now, look, it, it's just a dumb tile. People make it smart. People give it energy. Like the product is nothing without people. So we're like, we're really aware of where that sits. And it's a small amount of energy that you can generate from a footstep if you compare it to a huge solar panel and the well the problem we're addressing is that look we know that solar works and has been around since 1950 has had a trillion dollars invested in it and it, it works it's a really sound technology now if you don't have a desert if you don't you know in arizona it's brilliant but if you're in a dense urban environment you're really limited on using things like solar so we offer a way that say especially in a subway where you can generate power where there's no chance you can use solar or a ground level where solar is really limited we offer that solution and i think that we're not trying to replace solar and it is a small amount of power you'll never power new york city from people alone um, but it can take a small amount of that city's demand off grid and we see it as part of this energy mix of the future we need new technologies you know there's there's that maybe nuclear fusion will be ready one day and can feed in you know 60 percent of the grid's requirement but you still have that application requirement for solar and wind and, and people power too so how much can it actually generate right so you're using it essentially locally like you've put up these these tiles where people step on them and it instantly generates light right there, which is pretty cool, right? Like you could you see that working in like, let's say a music festival where you need to power the lights and you got a lot of people dancing. And so they can use the energy that people are from people's dancing to power those lights. But how much energy can it create? You were talking about how many watts that is, but translate that into layperson's terms for us, Lawrence. Like, what is it that a bunch of people dancing can actually power? Could they power an entire concert's light system? Yeah, so depending on the amount of people, you can power you probably could power a whole concert lighting system. And now LEDs are really efficient. So those lights, they they use a very, very small amount of power. So I think you need to be aware of the constraints. Now, if you're trying to earn dollars from the energy, we call it a feed-in tariff in the UK. If you want dollars in energy in your bank account, 
using kinetic energy from people walking isn't the right way. But what it is really good at is, is generating energy for specific applications because one step can do amazing things um, based on how efficient things that LED lighting is. And uh, one of the, the key things that we really realized is we did one of our early installations at Heathrow Airport. Now, Heathrow Airport is one of the busiest European airports. Many of your listeners would have flown through it. And what we realized there is, you know, I'd left this energy company. I'd been playing with prototypes in my bedroom for years. But then I realized I saw like old ladies playing on it with their husbands. I saw like small kids see it from a distance, have no idea what it was, but run and start jumping on it and power lights on the wall. And I, I looked at it and funny, you know, every time I flew from there, I would be sitting like a weirdo, just watching people on the floor. Cause obviously it was paved in as my baby. And I realized, I said, look, I, I've made energy fun. I've actually made energy fun. And that's really, really important. And so one of the big areas we're addressing now is we realize that like a huge part of the climate change battle is about education. Like people need to be aware of what's going on and change their lifestyles and change their buying behavior. And so we believe that like PaveGen is a way now to bring people along on the journey. And although it produces like a small amount of dollars in form of energy, if you're if you've spent millions of dollars on solar in uh, Arizona or any hot environment uh, with lots of sunlight, PaveGen is the final part that brings it together. It's a bit like hugging a solar panel. You can't do that, but you are the solution when you walk on PaveGen. You are helping with a government, with a companies, or with a public a municipalities plan to transition for a greener future. And I think that's an element that really picked up more than we ever could imagine and that it really is this you know people are desperate to make change but i think as a consumer you feel a bit limited of what you can do yes you can recycle your plastics but really you know it's it's really hard for people to feel empowered and paved in is that solution that you you take people on a journey with you you are delighted by a footstep you can see the energy you produce but it really does like help to change people's perception of what energy is and probably even realize how hard it is to generate power you know it's it, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it's really interesting once you start learning about energy and how much it takes, like looking at energy density of various types of energy sources, and you realize like why we use fossil fuels, because they are so good at creating energy, even though they're also good at creating emissions that warm up the planet, unfortunately. What about a treadmill, Lawrence? Like I use a treadmill. Is it possible to have a treadmill that is self-powered, that just from your own steps, this thing can run? Or is that too much energy for what a average you know, an average sized human is going to create by running on it. Yeah. So I think when I go to the gym, I always go like, what, why are we like plugging our phones in and powering all these screens from mains power? When all we're doing is we're, we're wasting all this energy. Like you humans, when they metabolize food, they use their energy and it comes out in heat and they, you know, it was wasted. Like, there must be a way to use that power. So like, I've been really intrigued with the idea of a treadmill on the kick plate on the bottom. You could harness power. I'm not sure if you could like generate. I'm just trying to think about if you generate enough energy to power the motor, you'd have to have a battery with a like a really good amount of stored in there to do it. But I think you could like run all the lights for a gym and charge everyone's phones and power all the signage and screens and all the advertising that's up there from people on a gym. We'd love to do it. It's been my passion. I found. I haven't found a gym who's like ready to commit that kind of budget because we don't have the product yet, but it'd be great. And and I also thought like when you stand up at work and everyone has these standing desks now, why don't you just stand up and rock backwards and forwards and generate power to power your workstation? Why are you taking power from the grid when these people have treadmills? Why don't we actually like 
create a balanced board that is an energy board that could actually like do something. So I've got some big ideas um, for the future with with those kind of applications. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. If you if you want me to build you a treadmill that could generate energy, maybe we can do a shout out and find a sponsor and we could we could make something happen. Well, here you have it. If you own a gym, if you are listening and you own a gym and you want to have a really major international news story about your gym and get some earned media here, this is your way to have self-powered treadmills. That would be pretty awesome. I live in Sacramento, California, where sadly energy blackouts are not that uncommon here in California. And I have often thought, you know, about why we don't have off-grid energy sources like in our homes that could at least power something, right? So you could charge your phone or something in the event of a power outage. So that would be cool also if you could envision home, like new homes being built. I presume ripping up the floors of current homes is pretty uneconomical to do. But in new homes, if this type of technology were included, you could, you know, hopefully help people to generate their own energy during blackouts. But that leads me to the question, Lawrence, about the cost, right? Like, because the question, of course, for all of this is, is it economical, right? Is it, it's cool, no doubt. And it's fun, assuredly. But how can you get to a place where it's actually economical to do this, where, you know, somebody puts in an upfront cost to install this technology. And then over a certain amount of time, they use enough less energy from the grid that this thing pays itself off. So what is the cost structure looking like for, for this type of technology now? Yeah, so really good question. So at the moment, we're still in small production. We manufacture all our products in London. So, you know, London is not renowned as a high tech, high volume manufacturing hub. So the product is still expensive. So we're not seeing like, you wouldn't get a payback today from our our projects. But I think the things that we're really interested about are, we're interested in, we're building a new suite of low energy screens that are self-powered from PaveGen. So imagine every advertising sign, the thousands of signs across a city like New York, if you could take them all off grid and make them people power, there's a huge saving there. Secondly, we're building green walls that you may see when you walk into nice office buildings of irrigation. And we can actually power the irrigation system. So you're greening the office in two ways, through lighting up from your footsteps, but also through literally watering the irrigation and making the green foliage grow. And we're also doing things like we're integrating solar panels into the tiles. Now, I said earlier that I don't like solar in cities, but there is a place, especially in really hot countries. So I'll give you an example. You know, we've we've got really great deployment across the Middle East, but in summer, no one's outside. People are not walking outside at all. And we're like, well, that's such a waste because PaveGen is a dumb tile and there's no energy if you don't walk on it. But if you can make it a hybrid solution, you're going to get the sun energy when it's really, really hot and no one's on it. But when in, in colder times, you've got the the pay people power. So I think that's a really interesting um, use case. And then the final one is, look, we, we've become world experts in kinetic energy. I can take this tiny bit of movement and, and generate power. And so we're looking at, making the most of our global pattern protection and building like the next phase, which will be using the energy of vehicles uh, on roads. So, you know, think about six axle trucks and generating energy of them, you know, compare the weight of a truck to the energy of a human being. So I think there's like massive area that's untapped in that space. And, 
you know, today, you know, pavement is like, I guess, uneconomical because I'm hand building them myself and I'm quite uh, expensive compared to a, a robot. We've got a small team of people. And we are building, you know, batches of thousands, but we've got to get into the millions to allow us to really bring that price down. So we're raising around now that's going to allow us to really scale up our production and then bring that price down to get the unit economics to a level that we see like it, will just, it can just be everywhere, you know, and allow us to get it close to our mission of like empowering communities all around the planet. Yeah, that would be amazing to have highways where, for example, the lights on the highways are powered by trucks driving over them. And it would also be pretty amazing. I was thinking like, you know, if, if really a small amount of movement can generate energy, like if your cell phone just by moving it was creating battery power. So for example, you know, like I have a hand crank radio, right? Like you crank this thing and you get enough energy to, you know, actually listen to something. And that's old school technology, obviously has been around for decades, but wouldn't it be awesome if Apple had an iPhone, like something where every time the phone moves, it offers a little bit of charge to your battery. That would be amazing. Definitely. I mean, there have been various patents that I kind of have looked at along the years of people thinking about it. I think if we were still using Blackberries, like we probably would have it now because the problem is we don't have those. No one really has keyboards anymore. It's all done on screen, but there are, there are some companies looking at it. I think the nearest we're getting to is, you know, this is a, an, I've got a sports watch on. I'm showing you over the camera. It's a, it's a Garmin, but you can get Garmin now with integrated solar. However, the solar does not power your uh, watch forever in perpetuity. It will extend the life of your, your watch, which is in a way a bit, a bit of a shame because i'm thinking it's 2023 solar's been in development since 1950 um it's a real shame that they can't even run a, a simple you know garmin uh watch yeah. from solar yeah. and if they just released a new one but when i last looked it, it was only like extending lifetime rather than giving you power permanently yeah, it, it, it is definitely sobering. And it reminds me of a thing that happened in my own workplace where we produce ingredients for the animal free meat market, like the alternative meat market. And we were looking at what it would cost to run our process on solar panels. And it's not that incredibly energy intensive, but it was still acres literally acres of solar panels that would be needed to do that. And it's just, you know, you look at that and you think we need some better solution and hopefully nuclear fusion is, is, is going to someday save us here because it's really tough to, when you look at how solar panels are great, but just not capable of satiating the energy demands that we have as a civilization today. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpick in that. I think, look, in Europe, with the energy crisis caused by Ukraine, that's meant that the energy whole... Yeah, caused by Russia, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, be, so the, the 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 battle in Ukraine, if you like. So, but that, that right. that's meant that the wholesale energy prices have gone up a lot more for us in in the UK. But that's meant that solar has got a lot more viable here um, because we really felt the brunt of it um, in terms of cost rises. So that's that's good because it drives more people to adopt solar because those grumpy people who didn't want to spend the money now it's financially viable. Obviously, in America, energy is cheaper. But you could argue that they're not really costing in the full environmental impact of that of that energy. So there's a lot to unpick there. But I think we need to like we need massive government stimulus and support to make these renewables more widespread. And the great thing is that once you've got them, you're just not paying the energy company every single month because who wants to do that? If you if you roll up 50 years of paying an energy company, that's a hell of a lot of money that you'll be you'll be paying. So I think you know in the long term it does make sense. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting in California where a lot of people have solar panels on our roofs, including my wife and me, because California under Governor Schwarzenegger had this uh, million solar roofs program to try to incentivize people to put uh, solar panel on the roofs. You know, what ended up happening is so many people have solar on our roofs now that, you know, we're not paying energy into the, we're not paying, right, for energy, right? Because we're tapped into the grid and we're providing our solar into the grid because most of us are generating more energy than we use in our own homes. And as a result, they've implemented basically a like a tax so that it's a grid use tax uh, for people who don't purchase from the grid. So they just to mean the maintenance of the grid requires payments into it, even if you're not buying energy. And so that is quite an interesting thing that happened because of just how prolific solar roofs have become in the state of California. But hopefully we'll get not just solar roofs, but paved gen floors on our houses and other things, which would be really phenomenal. So let me ask you, Lawrence, like, you know, you've had quite a journey here, like a decade and a half of, well, I I guess, as you would put it, a a lot of attempts and failures and then eventual success at creating something where you are generating millions of dollars of revenue. You got hundreds of projects and and deals around the world. And and I'm sure are looking to scale this, not just into single digit millions, but hundreds of millions and eventually billions of dollars of of revenue per pave gen. So looking at this, have there been resources that were useful for you? Like anything that you've read or seen or, or heard that might be useful for listeners of this show who are thinking, man, this Lawrence guy sounds pretty cool. I would love to do something like him. What's been useful for him? Yeah, really. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot. So I guess like the first thing is like, it's a bit contrived, but like the lean startup, you've, everyone's familiar with the book by Eric Rise. And I think the interesting thing about that is it's by like quick wins and fast fails and like get your product out there quickly. Like Although it's taken me a long time, like I did get the product out there before it was ready. I just got it, got it out there, got it tested. Yes, it caught fire. Yes, it broke. But that was really important to to get it out there. One thing I've really enjoyed, like in the last couple of years, is the the story of Jamie Simiroff of how he did the Ring doorbell and sold it for a billion dollars to Amazon. And it was, I think, how I built this by Guy Raz. Obviously, not to promote another podcast because this is this is the best. But obviously, Guy Raz is like a you know super well known guy, and I I love the idea that like Jamie Simroff just sat in his in his shed trying to build something that was going to have impact. He tried five or six things. The six things failed, and then he thought, well, I'm not getting any deliveries because I haven't I can't hear the doorbell, so I'm going to build something. And lo and behold, the thing he built just as a coincidence was the product that was sold for a billion. So it's amazing how you stumble across ideas and I think that really gives gives me a bit of inspiration every time I think about things not working and and getting up and go uh, from there. So that's been a really good yeah, driver for me. Nice. Well, we'll definitely link both to the Lean Startup, which of course is very popular, and also to How I Built This, which is justifiably very popular since it's a great podcast. So I will, I'll, I'll link to both of those in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. And Lawrence, finally, there's a lot of people who want to do something good in the world. They're not really sure what to do, what's needed, what should they be in their shed tinkering around trying to invent. So if you had one company that could exist solving some problem that doesn't yet exist, what would you hope that somebody listening to the show is going to do? What should they start? Well, look, I could give you a million answers. I got to make sure I don't give you anything that I actually want to do. But (laughs) there is is one thing and you might have to correct the English translation because it might sound strange. But like, if you look at a toilet, okay, a toilet is based on like a design from over 100 years ago. It uses like huge amounts of water for its normal operation. It needs to be cleaned regularly 
and it just seems so archaic i keep thinking like why do we still use do you still what do you call those porcelain are they still called toilets in america the porcelain yes. white things they are called toilets yes toilet in a restroom because we have a toilet in a toilet in england yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you have a loo also, but you know, for us, it's just toilet and a restroom. But all right, so what do you want? What what is somebody? How's somebody going to reinvent the toilet to have a a, 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 a water free toilet? I mean, you could start with that. At least start with that. Like, why are we using? Because like, water is a precious resource. Like, why are we using so six liters of water per flush on a product that is like a fundamentally, I believe, like designed wrong? Like, the Japanese tried something. It's cool if you've been to Japan and you want one that plays water and heats your toilet seat. But actually. I think that someone can build a toilet that uses no water at all, that is hygienic, that doesn't need regular cleaning. And imagine if imagine how many toilets there are across America. I just think there's a, a huge opportunity. And, and like people just, I think it's not sexy, so no one's thought about it enough. And I just think if you could find a way, you know, maybe you could use the energy from the waste product that goes down it somehow. I just think that's a huge area that is just, because it's not sexy, no one wants to talk about it. But I think there's a massive opportunity there from a 100-year archaic old technology. All right. Well, you know, Bill Gates has uh, been working on this. So it's, uh, I'll link to that because I remember Netflix did a uh, docuseries, like a three part docuseries on on Bill Gates. And part of it was on these water free toilets that they were trying to develop. How successful they've been, I don't know. They're primarily, it seemed like they were going to be used in places where there wasn't a strong water infrastructure, like in rural Africa. But We'll link to that and hopefully it'll inspire somebody who wants to try to do something to actually not just provide toilets to the developing world, but reduce water use in the developed world as well, like you're uh, prescribing here, Lawrence. So that's a cool one. I really uh, appreciate that. And we'll include some more info on that in the links in this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. Thanks so much. Really uh, glad for everything that you were doing at PayofGen. Very glad that you did not give up after all these years of, of trying and struggling to make this work. And we'll certainly be rooting for your success. And I hope I get to take a step on a paved gentile sometime soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul. Well, if you go to Yosemite National Park in a visitor center, you can have a jump on one. So yeah, thanks so much for your time. I'll, I'll send a video to you. Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.